This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began Self Work over four years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be quite comfortable with therapy or psychological kinds of discussions, to those of you who might have just been diagnosed with some kind of mental illness and you're looking for answers, or maybe you're having a relationship problem that you just can't seem to understand but also to a third group of you, to those of you who might even scoff at the idea of going to a therapist. I'd never do that, you might say. But you're just curious enough to listen to a podcast like Self Work and see what a therapist might have to say. Welcome to all of you. I wanted to take a minute here at the beginning of the episode to announce that I'd love to come to your club any kind of club, whatever organization you're a part of, and talk about perfectionism, both constructive and destructive, and how the latter is becoming more well-known as a problem in mental health. So far, I've presented at a wide range of venues, a multi-state conference for medication management personnel, an Arizona graphic artists conference, a group of Colorado parents whose children had died by suicide, a group of Arkansas Walmart women who regularly met together for support and encouragement, and a Florida women's group interested in discussing topics having to do with achieving fulfillment and success, to name a few. If you're a part of any group that might benefit from hearing this message, I want to talk to you. Right now, no travel is involved since the presentations are online, so the cost is next to nothing. All you have to do is email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com, and let's plan to meet and chat about the possibilities. Today in this episode, once again, sponsored by BetterHelp, we're talking about hypnosis. Not only will I try to debunk the various myths there are out there about it, but I want to help you understand exactly how it can work. I've been hypnotized several times myself, and I'll explain what I experienced and if it helped or not. I've also been trained in hypnosis, so I can explain what it's like to actually do it, how you set the process up for the most success, etc., I'll draw heavily on the work of Dr. Michael Yepko, whose trainings I've attended and who's an international expert on hypnosis and its effectiveness with depression. It's truly a fascinating experience, both to use it in therapy and to participate in it. And it's been moderately too highly effective for most of the people that have wanted to try it in my practice. Not everyone, but almost everyone. Our listener email today is from a woman who's talking about something we touched on in last week's episode about sexual abuse that one of the lingering issues can be the strong association of sex with danger or dominance or even pain. Just how do you break that kind of connection so that normal, healthy sexual intimacy can be enjoyed? I'll give her and you some ideas and obviously pull in the work of experts. So sit back and relax or enjoy the drive or whatever you're doing while you listen, and we'll learn together about hypnosis. I promise you it's a lot more than keeping your eyes on a dangling watch while you begin to feel sleepy, where you start quacking like a duck. None of that. I'm glad you're here. I 
I'll always remember the first time I was hypnotized. It was part of my psychologist's techniques for his treatment of panic and anxiety, and I was definitely in need of help due to ever-increasing panic attacks I was having, especially when the spotlight was on me. I'd become very panicked about panic, which is actually episode number two in self-work, which can easily happen because I was very afraid of having a panic attack in front of others. This was way before I'd even considered being a psychologist myself, and I was still working as a jingle singer during the day and had my own jazz group at night when I could get to work. You can imagine that panic attacks were far from welcome when I spent so much time performing. They'd really only just begun, and I was a long way away from understanding their origins. I simply wanted to get rid of them. You might remember that I finally had a therapist who challenged this wanting to get rid of them thing and helped me realize that self-acceptance was where true healing could be found. But this psychologist did hypnosis and I was all for it. We talked about what might happen and he said, I'm going to give you some suggestions to help relax and focus your attention. One of those suggestions will be for your arm to raise, but you won't raise it yourself. I said, okay, thinking how odd that sounded. But I closed my eyes and we began. In his very soft voice, he began a few minutes of just what he told me, suggestions for my breath to deepen and my body to relax, to allow my mind to let go of whatever crossed it, and instead focus on breathing and his words. And then he said, in a minute, your arm will raise. But then he went on and kept infusing suggestions into his monologue just to relax, to travel down an easy and welcoming flight of stairs and feel even more deeply relaxed as I did. He counted as I could see myself traveling down the stairs from ten to one. All of a sudden, I felt something. And by damn, my arm was raising, and I was not telling it to do so. I remember laughing at the moment, wondering what in the world was happening. But he kept talking, and I was listening, and he suggested my arm go back to its initial position, and sure enough, down it came in a bit. I was flabbergasted, but tried to stay focused and calm, breathing away, He then gave me some more suggestions about my panic decreasing and slowly guided me back into becoming more aware of sitting in the chair, being in the present moment. I've never forgotten it because it convinced me that there was a part of my mind that I'd never before realized, a part that could influence me in ways that I was not consciously aware of. Basically, I understand now that I had partly dissociated from my conscious mind, sort of like when you drive somewhere but you don't remember getting there. And then I hooked back up into my conscious mind. This isn't the kind of dissociation that reflects disorder or a mental illness. It's a much milder form of dissociation that all of us have the power to do. Think about when you're lost in an activity, whether that's reading or having sex or driving a tractor or running a marathon. No matter what, you can lose time. You can lose a sense of the present. Your mind dissociates. That's what's called a hypnotic trance when it's part of hypnosis. There's nothing weird about it. Whoever's leading the hypnosis doesn't have a trance over you. Your own mind has entered a trance-like or dissociated state. In fact, Wikipedia says, The major characteristic of all dissociative phenomenon involves a detachment from reality rather than a loss of reality. It's just a detachment from conscious reality. I mentioned I was going to draw from Dr. Michael Yepko's work in the intro. Here's his definition of hypnosis. Hypnosis involves an experiential absorption, a powerful focus on some stimulus, such as a thought, a feeling, a memory, an expectation, a sensation, the words of the clinician, or any specific aspect of experience. 
I love that term, absorption, because that's exactly what it feels like. There was once a famous clinician who was a psychiatrist by the name of Milton Erickson, and he used and taught hypnosis to many. In fact, he was the founder of the American Society for Clinical Hypnosis, and he believed that the unconscious mind was very active and could be both creative and problem-solving, and hypnosis was a way to communicate with the unconscious mind. In this sense, hypnosis can be thought of as the original positive psychology. Indeed, well before the term positive psychology was coined, he was writing about the need to pay more attention to and thereby amplify people's strengths. I happen to agree with that myself. I've also been taught that his style of hypnosis differed from more traditional models at the time, and this was during the 1940s, because he believed in actually talking to the person he was hypnotizing about what they were experiencing and weave their words and their experience into his hypnotic suggestions, a technique that was vastly different than the one where the client didn't actively engage but was led through the hypnotic session. We'll go back to Dr. Yapko, and I quote, Simply put, Even though someone may not have a conscious and deliberate strategy for producing hypnotic phenomena, he or she can respond to suggestions at the level of direct experience and produce meaningful responses, like my arm raising, with no awareness for how he or she is doing so. Anyone who practices clinical hypnosis does so with the firmly entrenched and therapeutically invaluable belief that people have more abilities than they consciously realize. Hypnosis creates an entirely optimistic appraisal of people, such that therapy gets organized around the belief that people can discover and develop the very resources within themselves they need to improve. So what does all that mean? (laughs) To me, it means focusing on what a patient or client, whatever you want to call them, has the power to do for themselves, but they simply need help to discover it. That discovery can be very conscious as in normal talk therapy or through more indirect means like hypnosis, connecting with the unconscious mind in hopes that it will also guide you to the change that you want. Just think about the whole and what I consider a very healthy swing in mental health into the practice of mindfulness. What mindfulness is, is altering where your mental focus lies and staying very much in the present instead of wandering off into worry or meal planning or whatever is supposed to happen next. Staying in the moment, relaxing and breathing into that moment, and by so doing, honing your mind's ability to focus more clearly. Now, that's probably not a great definition of the whole field, but hopefully you get my drift. Hypnosis is also a technique where you participate in a process where you change your own focus and allow your mind to dissociate or detach from what it's consciously focused on. That hypnosis could be self-induced or you can be led by a hypnotherapist. So hopefully that clears up for you exactly what hypnosis is. It's a mildly dissociated state that again can be brought on by yourself if you learn how to do it or by a hypnotherapist. And it's all about digging down into the unconscious mind to find what it has to offer you about your own healing and growth and positive change. Next, we're going to talk about what modern science has to say about hypnosis. But first, a message and a money-saving offer from BetterHelp. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self-Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? 
It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone. And I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast. Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. TryBetterHelp.com slash selfwork. That's TryBetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, Maybe BetterHelp is your next step. More recently, newer technologies such as brain scans, fMRI, a CAT scan, a PET scan, they've spawned new insights into the working relationship between the mind and the brain. And in fact, they can now see what's happening in brains of people who are actually engaging in hypnosis. And what researchers at Harvard found who studied the brains of 57 people, and that study will be in your show notes, they found that two areas of the brain that are responsible for processing and controlling what's going on in your body show greater activity during hypnosis. I read the article, and I didn't really know where those parts of the brain are. If you're a neurologist, you would understand, but I did not. But there are definitely two areas of the brain that are responsible for what's going on in your body, and they show greater activity. Likewise, there's an area of your brain that's responsible for your actions, and that's your prefrontal cortex. I do know that. And this area tends to be disconnected during hypnosis. So again, think about that. Your prefrontal cortex or your frontal cortex is responsible for your decision-making, for your organizing, for your focus on the moment, your focus on the present. And it is disconnected during hypnosis. Isn't that fascinating? So basically, to me, what the brain studies show is that you are much more focused on what's happening internally in your body than you are externally. You're not trying to figure out the world anymore. Your focus and even your brain is much more active in parts that have to do with your body function. So, What can hypnosis be used for? Now, this was Dr. Yapko's list. He lists the first one as age regression. I want to tell you, I think that anyone who does this has to have special training in it. What that means is you recall memories in vivid detail, perhaps even feel like you're reliving them. It can allow for reframing of memories. But when people have called me and said, I want to do an age regression, I've always said no, because there is specific training for that. And I think you have to be very careful, because your brain is protecting you in some ways by you, quote unquote, not remembering. At least that's my belief. 
The second thing hypnosis can be used for is age progression, where you can look forward and what Dr. Yapko calls, it's an intense and experiential absorption in expectations, a vehicle for establishing positive self-fulfilling prophecies, for example. And those are about the suggestions. You will feel less anxious. You'll be able to drive a car without anxiety or something like that. Number three is analgesia and anesthesia, the ability to reduce or even eliminate sensation, especially valuable in the treatment of all kinds of pain. Again, I think this requires special training. Number four is dissociation, which is a part of any kind of hypnotic therapy. But one of the suggestions to you could be for you to dissociate in your conscious life. So the suggestion could be encouraging a controlled attachment from overwhelming emotions. So one of the suggestions could be for you to dissociate, even though that's also what you're doing as you're going through hypnosis. So age regression, age progression, analgesia and anesthesia, and dissociation. I've really done age progression and dissociation. That's all I've ever done because that's all I'm trained to do. Let's talk about some basic myths about hypnosis. For example, one myth is everyone can be hypnotized. That's not true. There are some studies that show that 10% of the population is highly hypnotizable or suggestible. And certainly in my practice, I have found that there are some people that are just less able to let go like that, to detach securely and safely. But even those people I have found tell me that they really enjoyed the experience and that they got something out of it. So even though you might not be highly hypnotizable, it doesn't mean you wouldn't get anything out of it by trying it. Here's myth number two. You're not in control of yourself when you're hypnotized. You are definitely in control, absolutely in control. You can open your eyes at any point Despite what you see on stage when they're hypnotists that, you know, bring people up, they act like they don't know what they're doing or what's being asked. You always know what's being asked. And if you don't want to do something you're asked to do under hypnosis, you won't do it. And that's the trick of stage hypnotists. People go there to have fun. They go with the attitude of, oh, that would be cool if I quacked like a duck. So they wanted to quack like a duck, and that's why they could be hypnotized to do so. The third myth is hypnosis is the same thing as sleep. You may look like you're sleeping, but you're awake. You're just in a very relaxed state. Your muscles may become limp and you almost can feel like you can't move them, but you can again. You can. I've never had anybody go to sleep when I've hypnotized them, but I've had some people almost do that and they really weren't very hypnotizable. They just didn't know how to relax very well and the hypnosis really helped them relax. Here's the fourth myth. People can't lie when they're hypnotized. Nope, they can. (laughs) You still have your own free will and moral judgment. No one can make you say anything that you don't want to say. And if you want to lie, you can. (laughs) So hypnosis certainly doesn't change your character. Let's talk briefly about actually going through hypnosis. When I've observed different clients, some definitely seem more relaxed and deeper in that focused state than others, but practically everyone tells me that they enjoyed the experience. A few say, meh, but most everyone says that at the least they became very relaxed and that was beneficial. I was taught to do the exercise that my former therapist did to me, the one about the arm raising. The reason why you do that is to assess how deeply someone is hypnotized or how readily they've allowed their conscious mind to be shut off. It's not a success-failure thing, it's kind of a measurement. Frankly, I stopped doing it after a while because I wanted to stick more with the Ericksonian way of doing hypnosis. 
I talked to you about Milton Erickson, where I suggest to the patient that they're going to be able to describe to me what they're experiencing, and the very act of talking will deepen their relaxation. Again, prior to the session, we've talked about the suggestions they believe will be helpful, and that's the route I go. However, when I introduce a particular scenario, I might suggest a walk in the woods or seeing themselves walk in the woods, seeing themselves at a beach or in a room by themselves where they feel safe, then they'll explain more of that to me and I begin to ask gentle questions that are based on what they tell me as well as on their own therapeutic issues. For example, people have been comforted by a deceased grandmother who appears in their safe room or someone from their past or their imagination who they can see walking toward them on the beach. All of it is done with lots of suggestions of calm and safety. Probably the most dramatic thing that has ever been described came from a young woman who'd been raped in high school. She'd come in and done hypnosis as well as regular therapy, and the nightmares and other rituals she was compelled to perform, like sleeping with the lights on, not being able to have sex or be intimate. Basically, the symptoms of her PTSD were almost gone. She was happy for the first time since her rape, until she accidentally and somewhat bizarrely ran into her rapist, who was working behind the counter of a fast food place when she randomly entered on her way back to Arkansas from her hometown. All her symptoms roared back, and she came back into therapy. We once again did hypnosis. She was in her safe room, and suddenly she said to me, He's here. I knew exactly who she meant. She was seeing him in her mind's eye, invading her safe space. I suggested to her that she yell at him to leave. She wasn't actually yelling in the therapy room. In fact, her voice was whispery but emphatic. Go away. Go away. Leave me alone. She kept saying this over and over with my encouragement, and she watched him leave. She was crying softly, but still very much in a deep, focused state or trance. When I suggested she re-enter her present-day consciousness, feel the weight of her body in the chair, hear that the air conditioning was on, she blinked and smiled. I got rid of him. Now, believe it or not, she told me in the next session that all her symptoms had once again vanished. She didn't need the lights on. She didn't need the TV blaring. She could have sex once again with her fiancé. Again, this was very dramatic. But it's also a testament to what your own mind can do when you tap into the potential of the unconscious mind. Because, as Dr. Yapko would teach, hypnosis is simply an avenue to using that power, the power of your unconscious mind, to change in positive ways. The listener email today is one where I don't think there was an easy answer. Hi, Dr. Margaret. Um, two years ago, I broke up um, from a narcissist, a partial covert narcissist. I had a trauma bond. It was a codependent relationship. So I've been healing from that. In the last two years, I got engaged to a wonderful, loving guy. Um, but sometimes I still feel the effects from before. So I feel like my subconscious mind has associated sex with danger because of the casual way it was before and how I didn't feel like I was worth anything with my ex. Um, so even though everything was good with my fiance, suddenly now, since I feel like I'm healing, I'm less numb and I'm waking up, my body suddenly awake and it thinks I'm in the same danger. And so it's like turning off in the middle of intimacy. So I feel like I'm going to freeze trauma response. And I know my fiance loves me and it's not the same as before, but I don't know how to get that into my heart so I can keep going. Um, so let me know if you have any advice and I love your show. Thank you so much. I had a hard time hearing the very middle of her question, but what I think I heard was that 
this listener is stuck in a paralyzed place when she tries to be intimate with her now fiancé because of what happened to her during her previous abusive relationship. And although her mind wants to move on, her body still remembers and is stuck back in the past. At first, I thought she was saying that she equated physical or sexual arousal with pain or danger, which could be. Many people seek bondage or have some kind of sadomasochistic desire, although as a therapist, I can only remember working with a couple of people who revealed those practices to me. There may be many more. I don't advertise as a sex therapist, so that's probably the reason. Certainly, the success of Fifty Shades of Grey would suggest so. I found, however, this really great article by psychiatrist Dr. Aaron Carietti explaining the mind-body connection in bondage in sadomasochism and about how consent, which is supposed to be inherent in BDSM, sexual activity, can be easily manipulated. However, when I listened to the tape the second time, I became more convinced that her mind definitely wanted the association to stop, but her body was stuck in the past, thus making it more like a post-traumatic stress disorder reaction. There's a wonderful book entitled The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk that explains this phenomenon very well and gives great suggestions for learning to connect safely with your body's message. Here I quote from a wonderful summary of the book. The most natural way for human beings to calm themselves when they are upset is by clinging to another person. This means that patients who have been physically or sexually violated face a dilemma. They desperately crave touch while simultaneously being terrified of body contact. The mind needs to be re-educated to feel physical sensations, and the body needs to be helped to tolerate and enjoy the comforts of touch. Individuals who lack emotional awareness are able, with practice, to connect their physical sensations to psychological events. Then, they can slowly reconnect with themselves. Now, I'll have both these references, both the summary and the name of the book, in the show notes for this listener to read, as well as any of you who might have similar issues with intimacy. The bad news? It can take time to rebuild those neural and somatic or body pathways and allow them to heal. The good news is that it can be done. And you can go on in life truly putting the past behind you and enjoy the present for exactly what it is. Whether it's through techniques like massage, meditation and mindfulness, or therapies such as EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, or perhaps even hypnosis, you can learn to keep your body and your mind in the present. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you for all your ratings and reviews, both on Amazon for my book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, which was written for people who have to stay in a lot of control, and they tend to want to look like they're having a perfect life, but underneath there is significant pain, even trauma. And then, of course, the ratings and reviews for self-work on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thank you so very much. You're a great marketing team. <laughs> you can get in touch with me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. You can subscribe to my website, DrMargaretRutherford.com, and you'll get a weekly newsletter that will present this podcast as well as my weekly blog post. And it's a great way to keep up with things easily. Thank you again. I'm very grateful you are here and were here. Take good care during these very trying times. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.